So okay, we are here with Captain Fancy Boots. Um, it's episode two, and the captain is overwhelmed with your support. He really appreciates it. So um, just to start off where we left off last week, um, Dara, we were talking today um, about finishing off on ayahuasca and um, the psychedelics. So you mentioned nettles and you men- mentioned them. Um, the frog. I find it really interesting that you says it uh, it opened your mind. Could you could you talk to us about that the so the the frogs where they inject you with the poison and also the um, the nettles where you were saying they sting you with nettles. Yeah, so when I was in Peru, they have a medicine called kumbu. Now that's when they take a poison off the back of a frog, and they burn you, and then they put the frog poison into you. Now physical reactions is a, a rapid heartbeat getting sick physically feeling like you're going to die but from that what happens to your body is your body goes into fight or flight mode and starts to produce very strong hormones to fight the infection now it's bringing your body close to an experience of death to strengthen your immune system now these are ancient remedies that have been used for thousands of years that paracetamols and all these medical things don't really compare to the health factors of ancient medicines. So within Ireland, you also have ancient medicines such as nettle trashing. Now, nettle trashing is rubbing your whole body down top to bottom with bunches of nettles. And what that does is a very similar technique as what happens in the Amazon where your body goes into fight or flight mode and your body gets produces endorphins to fight these toxins that are being put into your body. Now, anything that is harboring or living inside of you that could be making you sick, make you think things, make you want things, make you addicted to things, could be living inside of you, feeding off you, wanting sugar, wanting yeasts that you are constantly attracted to. Now, these different medicines and different techniques of medicinal practice can then eliminate these harboring entities that could be in your body and although they're ancient some say mad remedies but for me they worked and for me they've cleaned my body and I haven't been sick in many years I got cold every now and again but that's about it okay so um that's that's awesome. Um, so let's talk about food. Go back to food for a minute, yeah, because you came home after after Peru. You moved back to Dublin. Um, and just to anybody that doesn't know, you know, Dara has worked in Michelin star restaurants, three Michelin star in Norway. What was the name of that restaurant in Norway? That was a restaurant I was in stagiering for in Maimo, in Oslo. Oslo, okay. So... So for those of you that don't know Michelin star, basically Michelin star is, it's the Yoda of cooking. It's the Star Wars. It's um, the pinnacle of uh, cooking. And Dara was fortunate enough to work in Michelin star restaurants. So just for people at that level, anyone that's looking to cook or an insight, talk about that, that fine dining cooking, that the high intensity of, of um the amount of hours you were doing what what was it like to work in a michelin star restaurant at, at that at that level you came so you came home first of all yeah came so i came home. came back to dublin and i was thinking about where i was going to work what i was going to do and i remember the best chef i'd ever seen 
from all my travels, the best chef, hands down. I've I've never seen a better chef than Michael Vian. Yeah. A man from Finland in the greenhouse, still in the fin- greenhouse today. And I went back to him because I knew. And that was in Dublin. Yeah, I knew the techniques I learned with him in six months was techniques that could take me five years juggling around that you wouldn't learn yeah. anywhere else. So I went back to him. And now you would start at eight o'clock in the morning, sometimes half seven, sometimes seven o'clock. You would do a morning lunch service from 12 till three. Then you would have prep for your dinner service. So by the time you finished, it was about half 12, one o'clock. By the time you got a bus home, you were getting four hours sleep, back up at it again. That was five days a week, 16 to 17 hour days. You'd be lucky to get a cigarette in between the days. But even though it was hard, I loved it. It was like you're getting into the Champions League final. Yeah, yeah. Every day, twice a day. When service starts, when the first customer comes in, game on. You need to have your shit ready. And when you are ready and it's rolling, it's the best feeling ever in those restaurants when people are so passionate about the food. They're so passionate about the art, about the precision, the preciseness. Yeah, it's like the Ronaldo and Messi of cooking, the best of the best, the pinnacle, yeah. Like, they're in it for every day. Yeah. Not even the big thing, it's everyday service. When people come in, it's an everyday game that you're just loving the food, loving the quality and loving the precision and the the buzz of the kitchen as well. It's just, it's just the it's a thrill to be part of. Yeah, know? yeah. And from from the greenhouse, you you mentioned you went you walked in one of Jamie Oliver's restaurant in Dundrum, was it? Or, or? Ja- Jamie Oliver's in Dundrum. Now that was more high volume, quick cooking. Now it was still sometimes instead in the greenhouse you'd be doing like forty five customers, but in yeah. Jamie Oliver's on a Saturday you could do up to six seven hundred people. Yeah. And that was fresh cooking dishes, each dish freshly cooked. So it's a more rock and roll sort of kitchen yep. where you have a lot more dockets. You still have a high, very high standard, but your whole dimensions of cooking change. Instead of focusing on one or two starters that you have to precisely make everyone perfect look identical. It's more about good, honest cooking, yep. but you have to do it really fast and you have I'm to run yeah, off yeah. your feet all day like you know. Yeah, and um, so from there you mentioned um, so you left you left Dublin again. You left from Jamie Oliver's and you went to Stockholm. Went to Stockholm, so yeah. So what what made you leave Ireland the second time? So why? I I was always obsessed with fire. Yeah. So fire was always a big thing for me from a very early childhood. So I seen this restaurant Extet, by run by Nicholas Extet in Stockholm. Stockholm Sweden, and yeah. basically it was an all open fire kitchen with no electricity in the middle of Stockholm first of its kind in that sort of realm that was serving high-end food but with very primitive techniques of cooking he was going back into the old age Swedish techniques Swedish Norwegian techniques of cooking of old smoking only they had big grills big pizza ovens no electric kind of uses all everything off fire yeah so I was very interested in going over and working there. Now, I didn't email or anything beforehand, so I just went over. You didn't email anybody? You just, no, just I just went up. over. I just went over. I was like, I'll just go over to Stockholm. I'll just rock up. Because if I send them an email, you'd be waiting ages and all that. Like you know. Yeah, because it's top quality kitchen. Yeah, quality so cooking, yeah. I went over and that didn't necessarily... I got the stagiaire there for a week. But they didn't have a place because they had a very tight-knit group. And in that tight-knit group, it was very hard to get in because they were all running well. They all loved their job. They were getting paid well. Yeah. 
and it was a very well run Michelin star restaurant. Yeah. So from there, I then got into a very good cooking company. Now, this cooking company was a company who worked in hundreds of restaurants across Stockholm. Yeah. So I then became a pirate chef. So I was, if say if you had a chef that was sick yeah. for a week or he had something wrong, they would ring me, they would ring the company, the company would say, right there, you're going to this location at this time. Now, that was mad. Because you could arrive there on a Saturday, they'd hand you a menu and say, yeah, right, there, there's there. there's your menu, there's your prep list, services in two hours, I'll show you everything on the way, but I'm busy as fuck as hell because there's no staff, yeah. and you're going to get into a role where a kitchen's already in the shit, and you're jumping into it. Yeah, you're not trained without, because in, in yeah, kitchens, you, yeah, you're yeah. usually trained for like... So you have to, you have to train yourself very quick because sometimes there could be a head chef gone. Yeah, and yeah. you're jumping into that role as well, like, you know, yeah. with a lot of untrained people around you. So, it, and then sometimes you'd be doing mass volume stuff, as in, we were doing in a stadium, we were doing like 3,000 people. That was like 3,000 plates going out in one. So it wasn't necessarily the cooking I liked, but then you would go to really nice restaurants and they'd put you on a nice section. But I loved the diversity of it. And the experience, constantly And the moving experience, around. constantly yeah. moving from place to place. So I was never really in the same exact same place as moving from kitchen to kitchen yeah. meeting new people making new contacts and just creating a great learning experience culinary wise and so so how long did you stay in stockholm uh, how long how long were you there for or i was there for five five months and then from there you moved to norway was it or uh, you... yeah from there i went home for christmas yeah and then went over to Moimo in oslo yeah, and that was that's the that's a three Michelin star. That was three Michelin star restaurant. Yeah, so so what, what about that? What was it like? So cooking at that level is is must be so intense and such such amount of pressure put under you. Um, so in Norway, obviously, the difference between you know cooking in Europe, cooking everywhere else, like you cooked in Canada. What what was that kitchen like? And how to anybody that wants to become a Michelin star or work under Michelin stars, what would you say about that? That was a, a really great experience of how everything is organized. Three Michelin stars when everything is organized from top to bottom, from teeth to toe. Yeah. Everything is precise, immaculate. There's a whole sense of zenergy. Yeah. Through the whole place. Like everything has everything to be perfect. perfect. Fabulous, yeah. Absolutely fabulous all the time. There's no room for error. There's no room for excuses. There's no room for lies. You have to be completely straight up. You have to be sharp, and you have to be neat yeah. all the time. You have to be. You have a very small space to work. You have to be quick, clean, and on your toes every day. Yeah. Morning service, night service, and it was great because there was such a big team of people. See, in those three missions, compared to a one Michelin star, you could have five, six chefs that are pushing a lot harder than a tree. Yeah, yeah. Because a tree, they have a lot of stars years, and but see, a tree, you're pushing a lot. You're going a lot more technical and a lot more detailed into the food. Yeah. But there it was amazing because I was with, there was 20 stagiaires at the time. Yeah. Now, stagiaires are in the train in these restaurants like I was. Yeah. Training in the three Michelin side to get the experience and know what it's all about. And during my time there, I met people from Italy, Spain, France, Norway. There was uh, very multicultural people that traveled all over the world yeah, so you're learning to work from in these yeah. so, sort of places. And you get a lot of contacts, make a lot of friends, and it's just an incredible experience of how intricate food can actually be and how well a team can work together with the right leader when yeah. the leader has a true vision and is very disciplined about that vision and portrays it well 
you know, not too harsh but not too soft. Yeah. And gets the team encouraged and gets the team in momentum with them. It's very special to see everyone working in synchronicity with each other. Yeah. Where the flow is working, everyone's teamwork, and when the teamwork works together, it's golden. Yeah, you know? teamwork makes the dream teamwork, work. Definitely. Teamwork makes exactly. the dream work. It's, right? uh, it's three mission star for a reason, you know, yeah. it's the Star Wars of cooking. So so when you were there, you um, was that where you found the RAM? Is that where that came into play? Or how, how, how did no, you go I... from from the three mission star to Norway to what happened after that in your journey? I got a contact while I was in the three Michelin star for a guy who I worked for in Stockholm. There was a big uh, dinner event yeah. and I was put on it solo because the chef didn't turn up. And from my performance that night, I got in contact for, with a chef up in Svalbard. Now, Svalbard is the northernmost point of civilization in the world. It's right up 360 degrees north. Yeah. Where there's a small old, used to be an old coal mining town. Yeah. Where the Norwegians would, it's, the island's owned by Russians and Norwegians. Yeah. Now, nowadays, there's still the whole ruins of the whole coal mining thing. But now it's a more touristy kind of experience where people go up there to see polar bears. People go out on dog sledding tours, yeah. jet ski or snow sledding tours. And I was working in a fine dining restaurant that was based around local cuisine of Svalbard. Yeah. So what, what were the food would you be cooking in? We were we were serving um seal, whale, local reindeer, uh local birds during summer season, but I wasn't really there for summer season, so I was there for the winter season, so I was very restricted. Yeah. Because you only had food deliveries every two weeks. That was by and a boat. And the win- winter was snowing, just so it was like hectic. Hectic, minus 18 degrees, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, God, oh, I, I went up, you know, and I I wasn't prepared. Your man gave me a phone call. Like, I just left Moimo. And your man was like... Moimo in... In, not, in, in Oslo. In Oslo, yeah. And your man gave me a call. He's like, can you be up here in the next week? And at the time, I was stagiering in Moimo. So I wasn't earning a lot. Yeah, yeah. So... I was like Arctic, Arctic gear. Like I rolled up in a pair of shiny shoes and a pair of jeans. Like you know, and, and, and what, minus, <laughs> and minus eighteen, minus eighteen, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I had a nice big jacket on. They were like, you can't be walking around. I still yeah, walked around there like that. Very fast, boy, and your big balls. I did me bollocks. I was yeah. grand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, they, they'd all have to crack, you know, because I was walking around with the shiny shoes and the hat on, like yeah, you know, yeah, minus you were eighteen. Yeah, like golden boy. Um, <laughs> and we were having the crack, like. So, so you went up there. You, you were cooking up there, and um. That's where you found love with the Ram, which are which are partnership that you're on now. Is that is that how did um, how did what happened while you were living up there, experiencing life up there, the most northern point of the world, to like following your journey to moving forward after there? Where did that lead you? So that led me to where I realised that I I was gonna begin my own culinary journey. Yeah. And my own journey as as myself. Before I'd always been working for leaders, and working for a leader that had a dream. And he was going for it. And yeah. I was behind him. Yeah. Pushing him on in that, that, that sense. But then I said, now it's time for me to kind of take leadership of my own dreams and my own visions. And what, what were them, what, what is them dreams, your dreams and visions? So at the time when I was coming back from Svalbard, I had a dream and a vision of creating a community that was based and sustainable around primitive accommodations and a huge underground primitive earth house restaurant yeah yeah so i was kind of working on that for a few months 
Well, I was working with a chef down in uh, West Cork, one Michelin star. We were pushing for the Michelin star that summer, just as I came back, and we achieved the Michelin star that summer. So you're working up in the northern point of, of Norway, and then you came back for summer. And worked to push for a Michelin for star. For Michelin star, and, to help a fella in Cork. And yeah. a friend that I worked for in a greenhouse in Cork, yeah. Ahmed, very good chef down in uh, West Cork. And yeah. he was using 100% West Cork ingredients, all West Cork herbs, West Cork plants. Yeah. So he was very in. He also worked in Myanmar too. Yeah. So he had the whole mentality of using the local landscape, the local culture, and bringing about a story within his cuisine. Yeah. So that was incredible to go down, push with the lads. Amazing experience, amazing chef. Great place to work for the summer. And then from there, I said, right, this is it. I'm not going to be working for anyone else anymore. You just want, you have just enough experience. Have enough worked, experience. You've worked in the best kitchens all over the world. Yeah. You want to go on your own, go solo. Yeah. Go solo. So I ended up at a. I went hitchhiking around Ireland then. Yeah. I just said, I'm going to hitchhike until I find this place that I'm going to build this thing. So you're building what you were kind of looking to build, like kind of a hole in the ground, kind of talk a bit more about that. What was that? What you were kind of building? So um, very old primitive huts where you would basically dig a hole around, build a roof around, kind of like uh, roundhouses. Yeah. Very small ones with accommodation in them, no electricity. A kind of back-to-nature experience where we'd line the little earth, small huts with sheep skins, reindeer skins, give people a little fire. Yeah. But it'd be very basic. You'd have a fire, you'd have a pot, you'd have a pan, and that's it. In your restaurant, it would be like an old-school earth house where the lowest level of the earth house would be your kitchen yeah so as a coliseum style where your customers sit above the kind of cooking above that's ground going level above yeah. ground level so your kitchen is below ground level all open fire chefs that are working off grills like pizza it was ovens. what 100 years ago maybe more or yeah well you wouldn't have i don't even know if they would have done it that way back then but it's a kind of a, a t concept I kind of created in a in, sense. In, in, in your own mind, yeah, yeah. And then customers would be able to look down at the chefs. There's no electricity. They're using all local kind of hunted, gathered, conceptual kind of food. And from the food was going to be a tale. The tale was going to be the first course would bring you right back to the first settlers of Ireland. Yeah. And we would be using the indigenous species of the land of that time. Now, your next course would then bring you into further developments of the culture, further, yeah. like, invasions of different cultures, how different crops and animals integrated into the country as Ireland developed as a, as a country. Yeah, to so what it's like now, yeah. Then your menu, let's say the Vikings came over, they brought this breed of sheep, this breed yeah. of sheep integrated, and then you would have a lot of folklore around the herbs. So it kind of bringing you on a, a fairy tale story from... The beginning of time up until modern day, true food. Because I think food is the only thing that can really bring you back to the pure essence of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the actual physical of it. Yeah. Like you can tell someone a story, but they can't eat it. Yeah, But yeah. people can eat something that has history. Yeah, and, and, feel, and feel it from feel it. feel it from that. So I was kind of working on that and went through a kind of entrepreneurial plan with that. But then going through the entrepreneurial plan, they had like five, ten years plans and I was like God oh, no yeah you weren't like, ready to settle down I You're wasn't ready to settle move, down that much it's a big commitment for somebody yeah. like you that lives lives that life lives free yeah uh, so then you kind of not not so much gave up on your dreams but kind of 
that got in the way you weren't ready to settle down for five to ten years you kind of you went somewhere else and you led where did that lead you when when that happened so then as i i went into how can i do this myself without yeah. having government grants government funding and everything behind me so how can i have my backpack say on my back and carry it yeah without having exterior people instead of carrying someone else's backpack and them asking me how's your backpack yeah you know asking me how is it getting on you need to do this you need to do this you need to step it up you need and then that i would lose it completely yeah in that sense so i said i have to carry the backpack and the backpack has to be mine so i then created a concept that i love to travel i love cooking for people so how do i co- i love culture heritage history but you don't want to work for anyone but i don't want to work for, for anyone but yeah. myself so then i said i was always obsessed with travelers you know and traveling culture so then i started to look at uh old bow top traveling wagons like gypsy wagons bow top gy- gypsy wagons bow top gypsy wagons like the handcrafted old gypsy wagons yeah and I came up with a concept in my head of thinking if I can customize an open fire kitchen in a gypsy wagon and then drive around with a horse while collecting ingredients, collecting preservatives, all the local ingredients around Ireland. Yeah. Foraging. Like Irish agriculture. Bring agri- back, yeah. Agriculture and going, say, to local farms with all my in- intricate ingredients that I had collected while I was on my little trips from farm to farm like a lot of different herbs, plants, seaweeds and everything, collecting them and boxing them off in jars in the wagon, going to a farm while it's in harvest, while it's in the prime of its harvest and celebrating their harvest through cooking their crop outside their farm through an open fire gypsy camp site. So I would set up camp outside their farm and cook their produce that's at the prime of their harvest and while seasons are changing and different farms are producing different crop, move from farm to farm, celebrating local Irish cuisine. Yeah, bringing back or putting Irish culture and Irish farming back on the map. Back on been, the map. As it's been in years, yeah. As, as local, as priority is local. Yeah. And celebrate and give farmers that bit of inspiration that people actually do appreciate yeah. what they're doing. And there's a lot them, of them that yeah. don't have the money anymore to keep the special ingredients that they're trying to produce going because everyone's buying from Aldi, Tesco yeah. that are just corporate enterprises that are drowning out air inherited culture that's been there for thousands of years. Yeah. So from that idea I then start looking up how I was going to buy a horse like you know tell me birds are going to buy a horse and they're yeah, like you're you know, so excited about buying a horse. <laughs> so I'm like I'm going to get a horse and I'm going to wagon So where her. did you find the contact for the horse? How how did that come along? So I was looking on Dundeal for a horse and I seen these two huge Roman horses. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'd never even knew a horse like this existed. Yeah, yeah. I'd never even seen a horse. Like, the size of its head was half the size of my body. Yeah. You know? And, and you have a big body as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm there like... Uh, I look at these two horses and a fella put them up for two and a half grand. Two work horses, trained to a T. I rang a fella called Paddy Hanley how did you get his contact because he's, he he's a legend yeah he's, he's yeah. king of horses in Ireland yeah the whole Ireland he's the king of driving horses in, in Ireland really and uh, I rang him 
I had no notion who he was really at the time. Yeah. I said, how much is he selling those two horses for me? Really oblivious of horse stealing or anything like, you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm talking to a very trained professional in horse. Yeah, yeah, His whole no life has been buying and selling and driving yeah. horses, you know. And uh, I'm talking to him saying, so how much are you selling them, them horses for? And he's talking to me about what I'm doing. And he's like, well, I have 57 horses on the go and I have about 100 carriages all around Ireland. So if you want to come down, I'll show you the ropes. <laughs> Legend. So I still didn't know who he was. Yeah. And I never even thought about looking him up because I just thought he was a fella in Limerick. And I went down to him and I camped in with his cows. I was camping in a scout field. Like I put up the tent in his cow field at his cows, like, you know, because <laughs> it was a busy house, like, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I was living with him then for, for two months. And while I was living with him, I realised... Dad telling me about all these movies, and I was like, what movies are you talking about? He was like, you know that movie, Pirates of the Caribbean, your man Jack? And I was like, your man Jack, what's he? Who's your man Jack? I'm thinking Pirates of the Caribbean, he's definitely not in the Pirates of the And then he was telling me, he's driving the horses. You know when Jack is on, standing on the two Johnny carriages? Depp. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Is standing on the two carriages, and he's going down. In Pirates of the Caribbean. In Pirates of the Caribbean in the they movie. Were... He was driving the carts. Oh, so. Oh, in so... the movie. The man in Limerick that were the going to collect the horse when, now. When was, Johnny, yeah. Depp, Johnny Depp was standing on two carts driving down a road, Paddy Hanley was driving the one horses. of the carts and oh, the horses yeah. balancing Johnny Depp on top. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So you're putting Johnny Depp's life in At your risk, hands. Do you know so what I mean? This, he's, this he's, is how he's, trusted this guy was. Yeah, and yeah, he was yeah. working in War Horse and countless, countless movies, like yeah, all yeah. different movies, just driving horses. and So that's where he got a lot of uh, carriages and then collected. collected many carriages so I was then driving uh, funerals down in Irish town yeah for the travelling community oh you were driving funerals driving horses. driving four horse carriage yeah for funerals so Paddy was showing me the ropes of how to drive how to rig top to bottom how to do the whole thing get the horses in get the horses out and drive horses round and we had a few tricky experiences like you know the horses aren't always settled, like you know what I mean. Yeah, of course, when, of course. When, when you have a, a funeral, especially with the traveling community, it's um, it's a big deal. So it has to it has to go smooth. And when you have two horses that aren't uh, aren't so settled just on the day, you know, all other days they could be settled, but with lots of people and everything around, they can get unsettled. Get nervous, yeah, yeah. And I remember we were about five minutes before uh, uh the coffin came out. This is a gypsy funeral. Yeah, yeah, travel, yeah, yeah. Travel from traveling community, and. Paddy's looking at me and I'm looking at Paddy I'm going these horses are going to go like this is not going to work it's either going to happen when they come out or we're going to have to do something now so Paddy gives me the wink to jump back up I jump back up Paddy goes right <laughs> gives them the whistle we gallop around the corner we belt it do a full lap like with the horse and he's you know the horses are almost in a full gallop like, the horses know? are going nuts yeah 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 and we go around the corner Just he just wants to tire them out just so when we get back around they'll be out of breath and the coffin will be able to move in. Now the coffin's just coming out, and we're coming down the road. We can see we're about a half mile away, but we can see the coffin coming out. Yeah, and yours are gone. Like, <laughs> and like, speed like, of light. Yeah, yeah, yep. And we are flying down the road because we know we cannot be late for this. Like you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just settle it down just a few meters before, and they're just looking at us. I just as the coffin's coming out of the gate, we're just pulling up, like you know. Just oh, Jesus Christ, <laughs> and um. So from there you you were staying with him and you were you were like learning the trade of the horse because that's what you want to do. So what happened? How long did you stay with him and what happened after that? 
I was with him for two months. Now, at the end of the two months, I was looking at my funds. I was looking at the horse. Paddy had found the horse then at the end of the two months. And I was looking at my funds, looking at the traveling wagon he had, looking at how I was going to get it customized. And there was a big bill in the, the whole process. And I was looking at my funds at the time saying, right, this isn't going to work right now. But this horse is not too hard. It's very hard to find these horses. So then I told Paddy, I'm going to go away to Norway. I'm going to save for the horse. If you can keep the horse here, I'll send you the money back. Yeah, yeah. And I'll pay off the wagon and everything when I'm over in Norway. So then I went over to back Norway. Back to Norway. Back to Norway to save. Which which part of Norway did you return to? I went to an island called Trimia. Trimia That's Norway, the yeah. east coast of Norway, down south of Oslo. And you went in summer, winter, or? It was summertime, May. Yeah. So I was going over for a summer season, a very small, it was like a natural reserve island. Yeah, and so you're going to save to put money into your business to work for yourself and not work for anybody. Your dream was just to go there, save money because it's easier to save in Norway than it is in most places. Yeah. Send money back to buy the horse to work on um, your business. So how long did you stay in the island and how long were you working there for? So I was there for five months. Now, on this island, there is so much you could eat. Yeah. Like this island was just an abundance of nature in the natural habitat and it was so had such balance to the ecosystem. Yeah. It was one of the most beautiful places I'd ever seen just from the the, harmis, the harmony of it, you know. So I was there for five months working, but then that's when uh I started to get enrolled with the Norwegian travelling culture. Yeah. And I didn't even know the Norwegians had a traveling culture. Like so, when you say traveling culture, like like the Vikings are like just people that have kept lived like the way they did years ago, or what type of traveling culture do you mean by that? So, big Viking families back in Norway, they eventually descended into like traveling folk who lived on boats. Yeah. And moved from say harbor to harbor, fixing sails, fixing boats, and kind of lived the same way Irish travelers would here in Norway and that was very unique for me to get a different concept around the concept I was working on because yeah, yeah. it was the same kind of concept of working from place to place helping people feeding people but you were always so passionate about the sea your dreams was always to sail for as long as I know you like for yeah, the last yeah. five six years so you kind of were so interested in that families and you went you went you were working in the kitchen over there in a summer place and then you got interested you started meeting people in that traveling community yeah, so then the boat culture as well over there, everyone's, the, the wooden boat culture, I just was in love. Because beforehand, I was, it was always, it was sailing, but I was always in plastic boats. Yeah. Over there, there's a huge wooden boat culture, and that just clicked for me. It then. blew you away, yeah. So then I was looking at the traveling culture, the woodenness, the, the, the organicness of it, and the way they lived free. And for me, it made a lot more sense. If you want to live free on land with a horse and a wagon, it's a lot more difficult than if you want to live free with a boat. Yeah. You don't With a boat, you don't have to feed a boat if you're using the wind. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can use an sailing. engine, but if you're just sailing, there's no need for feed or anything like this. Yeah. So, then... Well, then, then it's when I was I kind of within the forest of the place I was in. Now, this forest was highly vibrational forest for me. And it was very, very old, ancient 
kind of place that had a lot of historical resonance as in mightn't be on paper but I could feel the the essence of the island you and know the energy yeah the, the, the reason why I was there was to visionary project what I'm doing now yep. it was written in the pavements like even in the pavements you had these sailboats on the you know the well or the the iron yeah yeah that's on the on the ground so but it was like destiny it was, like it was destiny yeah, yeah yeah so it was, it was definitely my calling and I was in the the forest one day meditating and I would always go to a hoof or hove as they yep. call it there was a, a circle up there that I'd always go up and light fires and in this hoof I was looking at a fire and I'm looking at this fire and in my mind it's just speaking to me as in it just says bring this spirit of vibrational nature yeah. to the heart of Ireland take so, it back everything you've learned the culture everything and your calling was the fire was speaking to you to bring it back to Ireland to do what you want to do yeah well kind of that but it was a, as well as you're bringing a, a vibration of fertility yeah from a place that's very fertile very balanced in its so ecosystem yeah to a place that has been overgrazed its trees have been massacred its natural wildlife has basically been massacred compared yeah. to what you would see over there yeah you know so i was in the, the essence of it all it was a journey or a mission to bring the energy of fertility of a place of vast abundant nature to a place that has been massacred of its forestry yeah so then it came down to it that this fire i would have to bring an actual fire from norway to ireland now yeah. that in my mind i was thinking you know i had a few days and i was like man just leave this one like just leave this thought it's too just, much just, yeah. just leave that like this park, park, park that off like just just go <laughs> home like you know what i mean go home you have your, your mind, you're almost setting your mind on fire yeah yeah good morning but then everything just started developing yeah, yeah and every the world just started putting me into the mission and i was like yeah because you've always listened to your heart and the universe and everything that you've followed constantly has been evolving around you and it's like you listen to this so you got this vision to bring a fire to from fucking an island in norway to dublin and you were like how the fuck are you gonna how am i gonna manage this like i was like and then i'm uh i'm sitting at a harbor and it's my day off i'm just sitting at a harbor and I'm just thinking to myself about, I'm, at the time I'm like man you need to forget about this like I don't know why this is still going through your head like this is nuts like no yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't yeah. put it on a plane like you know what I mean it's yeah, not as if you, you, just, you can't do that it's, it's yeah. going to be winter soon it's not going to be possible just let it go and then a boat pulls up Ran pulls up on the harbour I'm looking at this boat going it's meant to be this ship, I have to talk to the owner of this ship. At the time, I was not concerned about the fire because I'd kind of mentally already let the fire go. Yeah. You know, I'd already let that ship sail. But I, I still fantasize about boats so and everything. You have, to, you, you, you have to see the ship, right? I have to see the ship. 